Good morning. It's a good day to be inside. Feel a little bit, uh, I don't know, unprepared a little bit. This morning was a little uh, hectic. We're uh, Michael and Brianna. We're supposed to arrive around six-ish, I think. But they didn't arrive until 9:30 as we were driving out the road. So, and then the roads were a little bit slick. So. Um, I'd like it if we could have a little bit of time of prayer. I don't know if there's two or three brothers that would like to pray, and then I'll close. Lift your name up to open your word and to um, hear what you have to say for us. I pray you would uh, quiet our hearts, help us to be still and know that you are God and that you uh, you have something for us. And I pray you to open our hearts to that, help us to receive your word and to it would take root and um, it would grow up and bear fruit. We pray you bless the remainder of our service. Be with us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so this is a uh, a message that's been well. I had I had something that's been on my heart for a while, and then just recently I listened to a couple sermons, and they both hit or two of the sermons hit on some points that I had been thinking about, and so. Um, it kind of confirmed in my mind, I guess, that the Lord had laid this on my heart. And um, so this is kind of a, I guess, more of a challenge to me than anybody else. Um, it's what God's been working on in my heart and um, helping me to see <clears throat> what he's been teaching me. So I've, I've, turned, or I've titled either uh, Laying Up Treasure in Heaven... Or else the other title is The Hands and Feet of Jesus. Um, I heard a story about this uh, sailor, and I don't know if it's true or not, but he he was shipwrecked up on an island, and the natives came down and picked him up and hauled him off and placed him on a crude throne, and they told him he was king for a year of the village. And so um, he thought this was pretty great. You know, he got shipwrecked, and he had all these people serving under him, but then he... All of a sudden, it dawned on him where were all the other kings that had been serving for a year. So he asked, and they said, oh, well, after you're done being ruler for a year, we send you off to this desert island, and you starve to death. So he was a wise man, and he thought ahead. And what he would do is he'd order people, or he'd send people, workers, over to this island, and they built, built houses, planted things, everything like that. So when he got banished, or when he got sent away from being ruler, he had he, he could sustain himself over on this island. I don't know if it's true or not, but he was laying up treasure somewhere else for um, a later day. <clears throat> so I want to talk about uh, how you and I have been given tremendous resources for a limited period of time, and the only thing we'll have uh, in the end is what we have transferred to the next kingdom. <clears throat> Let's uh, turn to Luke 18. Luke 18:18 18, 18, <clears throat> through uh, 26. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, "Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. 
Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I done from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lack you one thing, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Was he just speaking to the rich young or this, this, uh, Was he just speaking to this ruler, or was he speaking to everybody? Do we take it seriously that God says, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven? Is our treasure in heaven directly related to what we give to others in this life? Luke 12.33 says, sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth nor moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is our treasure in heaven? Are we putting away treasure up there? Or is our treasure on earth and are we hoarding things to ourselves? Um, Luke ten twenty-seven through 37. the parable of the good Samaritan. Uh, I'll start in 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? I noticed that earlier, back in Luke 18, when he's speaking to the ruler, he asked him how he read the law and it, what he saw. And they both asked how they could inherit eternal life. <clears throat> and uh, both of them, uh, back in Luke 18 and also here, it's doing something or giving something to others. <clears throat> and he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. So this man knew all these things. He knew the law. But he wanted to justify himself because I would venture to say he wasn't doing this. He wasn't reaching out to his neighbor. He wasn't loving his neighbor like himself. He wanted to know who is his neighbor. Is your neighbor just the person next door? Or is your neighbor the person down the road or is your neighbor neighbors are only the people within a certain amount of mile radius of you <clears throat> this man was a, the um, the man that fell among thieves was just a stranger to the good Samaritan but he gave him his time he gave him money he nursed him, he carried him on his beast. <clears throat> so now I kind of want to switch and look at the reality of this world. Um, I know, I think everybody knows we live in a desperate world. Um, it, there's much depravity and sorrow and evil out there. But um, have some statistics here. Um, there are seven, well, 
Currently, there are 7.7 billion people in the world. One billion people live on $1 a day. <clears throat> Two billion people live on $2 a day. And three billion struggle every day just to survive and don't know where their next meal will come from. That's over half the world's population. And the worldwide income... Uh, no. So one billion live on $1 a day. Two billion live on $2 a day. And three billion struggle every day just to survive and don't know where their next meal is coming from. <clears throat> so you're considered high income if you make more than $50, uh, $50 a day. You're in, the, you're, you're in the high income for everybody or for the world. Um, the poor live on $2 or less. They're considered low income. $2 to $10 is middle income. And $10 to $20 is upper middle income. And 20 to 50 is high income. <clears throat> and on up. Another statistic that uh, struck me. Um, 29 children die a day from preventable or from preventable, prevent, very preventable things um, or just lack of nutrition. That's 21 a minute. So every minute or every minute, 21 children in the world die. That's 10.3 million, 10 million a year. And it doesn't affect us. We live our lives as just going along and... Um, we don't see it, that's why. I thought I heard of a guy that actually would take his, or he'd bring, he was doing some kind of talk like this, and he'd actually bring a goldfish, and I thought about doing it, but he'd bring a, gold, he'd bring a goldfish and put it on a bowl, and they would take the goldfish out and just set it on the pulpit and just sit there and let everybody watch it flop and die. And he said inevitably somebody would actually come up and take the goldfish and put it back in the bowl. Um, but that's, we just aren't, we aren't touched by the reality of this because it's not near us. We don't see it every day. We're not in the midst of it. Just to give a little, a little idea, 29,000 children die a day. The population of Coralville is 20,800. So that would be every day Coralville would be wiped out. <clears throat> if there was a tsunami and 29,000 people died... The news would be all over it. Everybody would be talking about it. Uh, the world would mobilize to help, send aid, all kinds of things. <clears throat> um, a single death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. When you get to numbers that big, it's really hard to wrap your mind around it. <clears throat> um, I don't know who's here actually has seen somebody die or been around somebody as they die. Um, there's a sense of, I don't know, the whole atmosphere has changed. I don't know unless you're totally hardened to it, but um, when you're around it, you just, you can feel it. You can feel its presence. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, <clears throat> and then to imagine um, a child. I mean, I've never been around a child that's been dying, but I've been around adults, and that's, I don't know, that, that really impacts you in a different way. Um, suppose you were 
you were dying and you knew there was someone that someone could have prevented the tragedy but didn't do so because they needed a new pair of shoes. Or they thought they needed a new pair of shoes, maybe I should say. Puts a little more of a reality on it. $13 billion is the cost of providing medical care, food, and water to save 70% of these 10 million children a year. Now, $13 billion might sound like a lot, um, but <clears throat> that would save 70% of them. Americans spend $11 billion on bottled water and $11 billion on coffee every year. <clears throat> so that out of the 10 to 11 million children that die a year, every year, they're attributed to six causes. Diarrhea, malaria, neonatal infection, pneumonia, preterm delivery, or lack of oxygen at birth. It's pretty basic things. Diarrhea and pneumonia, those are very, very preventable diseases. <clears throat> and then there's the malnutrition and clean drinking water. Um, if you at, They say there's... 140 million professing Christians in America. <clears throat> and someone estimated that if everyone would give, all the Christians in America would give $15 a month, you'd meet this $13 million or so, somewhere in there to cover all these needs. <clears throat> so that's one reality of this desperate world. Then you have areas of war and conflict and all those type of things. Um... But another area that you don't hear a whole lot about is bonded labor. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of bonded labor. Besides Tyler. <laughs> bonded labor is basically a loan shark. So there's a family in, a lot of, I think a lot of it's in India or Asia. Um, a family will have an emergency. Someone will get sick or they just don't have enough food to survive. And they'll go to this guy and he'll give them a loan. And then in return they give their child to bonded labor, so he's supposed to work off the loan. Well, what they don't explain is they'll give him the simple loan, but they don't explain that the child will only make eight cents a day or so, and the interest will be fast, will accrue for faster than they pay it off. So, in, I mean, basically they're just giving their child away for this small loan because the more they work, the more they actually get into debt because their interest grows and they never pay off the principal. So there's 246 million children in bonded labor in the world. <clears throat> Here's a little, um, I don't know, I call it note that's written in the first person of one of these. It says, my sister is 10 years old. Who's here? Who's here? Uh, who here is 10 or 9? Nine? 9 or 10? So we have three. I think that means I think that statistic equaled out to one in six Ch children in the world are in bonded labor. <clears throat> so imagine this is your job, okay? My sister is ten years old. Every morning at seven o'clock, she goes to the bonded labor man, and every night at nine, she returns. It's fourteen hours. He treats her badly. He hits her if he thinks she is working too slow or talks to the other children. He yells at her. He comes looking for her if she is sick and cannot go to work. This is very difficult for my sister. I don't care about school or playing. All I want is to bring my sister home from her bonded labor. For 600 rupees, I can bring her home. That is our only chance to bring her back. But we don't have 600 rupees, and we never will. Anybody know how much 600 rupees is? 
$8. So for $8, this 10-year-old girl is working 14 hours a day and never paying it off. For less than the price of most fast food meals, it would buy our freedom. <clears throat> so uh, when, the, when this was written, the girl was 10 and she'd been in bonded labor for one year and she earned eight cents a day. <clears throat> what were you and I doing at 10 years old? How would it feel to have your, ch- your whole childhood obliterated in this way? Just think you'd be gone 14 hours a day. You wouldn't basically just, all you do is live to wake up and go to work at 10 years old. Most people in America would have a, a fit if they had to work more than about 10 hours a day. I mean, eight hours is the standard work day, and most people are pretty rigid on that. Um, and here this 10-year-old is working twice, almost twice as much for eight cents. <clears throat> How would you feel to have your whole... Uh, oops. It's because we were born in America that this didn't happen, or in a developed country. Try to imagine the life this girl lives. How would you feel walking to work every morning? Just getting up at 7 o'clock, heading off to work, knowing what awaits you at work. Through no fault of your own, you are about to spend 14 hours hunched over a basket of tobacco, rolling cigarettes. Your hands and wrists will hurt, um, and you'll be beaten if you roll the cigarettes too slowly or talk to the child next to you. You may have a matchbook put under your chin, and if it falls, your master will know you have looked up and will punish you. Sometimes they even chain the children, like if they're carpet weavers, they'll chain them to their, their looms so they can't get out or they can't escape. <clears throat> you are likely to grow up deformed, unable to live a normal life. Think further. If you knew where, there were other people in another country that could free you, what would you want them to do? Do you really believe in the golden rule? Is it just luck or fate that you and I were born in the United States? <clears throat> Back years ago, we not, used to not know these things. Um, but now with technology and advances in that way, we, we know all these things. Maybe, you didn't, maybe we didn't realize or don't have these numbers always before us, but we do know that there's things like this that go on in the world. <clears throat> so what does that what does that do, or how does that affect us when we think about how, um, the, when the, we think about the Bible verse that says, um, uh, no, it can't, won't come to me. Um, basically, that if you know something is sin and you don't, and you don't address it or don't deal with it, then, or maybe somebody can help me with that one. Do good, it is sin. Yeah, so how does that, how does that play into this? <clears throat> Those needs are out there. I have a, there's another little story here or information about a little boy. His name was Akbil Mesa, was born in 1983 in Madik, a commercial city outside of Lahore in Punjab, Pakistan. 
born into a poor Christian family. At age four, he was put to work by his family to pay off their debts. Akbil's family owed 600 rupees, so that'd be $8 again, from a local employer who owned a carpet weaving business. In return, Akbil was required to work as a carpet weaver until the debt was paid off. <clears throat> Every day he would rise before dawn and make his way along dark country roads to the factory where he and most of the other children were tightly bound with chains to the carpet looms to prevent escape. He would work 120 hours a week, seven days a week, with only a 30-minute break. He made one rupee a day for the loan, but the loan continued to increase because of his family and interest. At the age of 10, Akbil escaped his slavery after learning that bonded labor was declared illegal by the Supreme Court of Pakistan. He escaped and then went to the police to report Arshad, that was the man that owned it, but the police brought him back to Arshad, who told the police to, who told the police to tie him upside down if he tried to escape again. Akbil escaped a second time and attended the Bonded Labor Liberation Front School for Former Child Slaves and quickly completed a four-year education in only two years. Akbil helped over 3,000 Pakistani children that were in bonded labor to escape to freedom and made speeches about child labor throughout the world by the time he was 12. And then he was murdered by uh, somebody. They think it had to do with the carpet industry. They think they actually had somebody kill him because he was taking their workers. <clears throat> there was an atheist organization that uh, they made a video and posted it on the internet, I guess. I haven't seen it, but... Um, and it has all these pictures of children in war zones or bonded labor, or things like that. <clears throat> and they, they flashed them on the screen and they had somebody singing, Jesus Loves Me, in the background. And then at the end, they had, they, it's read on the screen, it says, it's your God, it's his rules, and you're all going to hell. They're basically saying, there's all these problems out there, but you do nothing about them. And there's atheist organizations that are doing a lot of things, like just for, can I say, uh, humanitarian aid or doing things like that. <clears throat> so moving on, what is my responsibility after letting that, letting all those things sink into our, our hearts and our lives? These are children created, and I mean, there's also adults in bad situations. I don't want to get away or take away from that, but these are all children and people created in God's image. They all have a soul, an eternal soul. They're all... They have an eternal destiny. <clears throat> so what is my responsibility? God has repeatedly remind us, reminded us of our responsibility. It says a lot about the poor. So let's turn to back, go back to Proverbs. I have a few verses out of the, or chapters out of there I want to look at. <clears throat> so Proverbs 24. Uh, 24, 11, and 12. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? So this goes back to the knowing. If we know, we have a responsibility. <clears throat> Um, then let's turn to Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-seven. 
He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eye shall have many a curse. It's a pretty blunt and sobering statement that if we don't give, or if we give to the poor and we give to the needy, God will supply everything we need. We won't have any lack. We'll be totally taken care of. But if we hide our eyes, we'll have many a curse. Uh, Go back to Proverbs 21, 13. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Part of me wonders if that has to do with prayer. If we aren't, if we aren't, if we don't hear, if we stop our ears at the cry of the poor, don't give to those needs that we know are there, and we call to God, does He hear us? Uh, let's turn to Ezekiel 16. Forty nine and f- through fifty. Um, actually. Start reading in 49, I believe, yeah. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, uh, actually let's start in 48. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done. She nor her daughters as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughter. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. So if, if I were to ask the group here, what was the sin of Sodom? I mean, I think you'd all have everybody pretty much say their, probably what comes first to mind is their sexual sins and their perversions there and all those kinds of things. But that's, not even mentioned here why God took them out. Why God destroyed Sodom. It says, For pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So God destroyed them for pride and fullness of bread. But he also just destroyed them because they didn't strengthen the hand of those that had need. <clears throat> he puts, basically it's putting not giving to the poor and meeting others' needs right along, and it's the same sin as uh, sexual perversion, which is pretty sobering. How many of you noticed how much that sounded like America these days? Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. <clears throat> you 
God takes our attitude towards the poor very seriously and towards those that have needs. <clears throat> and, I, and so should I, and so should, so should you. Let's turn to Matthew 25. Start in verse 31. <clears throat> when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom of kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee, a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee, sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the very... Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then ye shall say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he say unto them, then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We see God judging the people. And it doesn't talk about how spiritual they were, what their prayer life was like, what, how much they read their Bible, that's not mentioned here as a, as a, um, as a ruler against which they're measured. They're measured on how, what they gave and what they did to those in need. <clears throat> we strive and struggle to do everything right, to make sure people are born again and live rightly, and all those things are right and good and have their place. <clears throat> um, and it's absolutely necessary. But when we stand before him at judgment, um, we're, we're told here that he's going to evaluate us. on the, He's not going to necessarily evaluate us on the life we lived in those aspects as much as he's going to evaluate us on what our heart attitude was and what we did for those that were in need. Why doesn't it talk about evangelism in here, you know? I mean, why evangelism is good and right and it commands us to do it in the Bible, but it doesn't talk about that's, that's not one of the categories 
Christ, was, the king, was judging on here. <clears throat> in the Bible, rich people are strongly condemned. And the underlying theme in, in the Bible is equity. I don't want to, I mean, you can take that too far. Um, but those that God has blessed, giving to those that have need. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 8, it talks about how God has given some people more than they need. And the reason he gives it to them is so that they have to give to those that have a need. And God has given us things, or money, or just whatever we have, for one reason only. So we can share it. That goes along with our, our walk with God also. Or our relationship with him. He didn't give it to us so we could have our best life now or have the latest electronic gadgets or fancy clothes or a big house or anything like that. He gave it to us as a steward to use to further his kingdom, <clears throat> to be his hands and feet, to minister to those that are in need. It's, it's almost like evangelism. God has called us, or God could use angels to evangelize. He could send his angels to minister. Or to, he could send food to the poor, all those things. Um, but we get a special part in working with God. Have you ever thought of that aspect of evangelism or giving to, those, giving to the poor or meeting those needs? God has given us the opportunity to work with him to further his kingdom. He wants that relationship with us. He wants to work through us. Yeah. It made me think of uh, even our, our children. God has given them to us, and it's our responsibility to raise and train them uh, f- to follow him and to love him with all their heart. But, I mean, he wouldn't have to do that. He could... He could make them do that, or he could, like, just like sending his angels to evangelize. But he, he lets us work with him. I mean, if you have a garden and you don't go out and plant, and you expect to get things, you're just going to get weeds because that's all that grows. But, um, but you can't make that seed grow when you put it in the ground. God does that. So it's kind of along the same lines where when... We're, when we're growing something, we're working with God, just like we're working. Um, we can be his gardeners, can you say, and manage his resources and uh, further his kingdom in that way. And that's, that's exciting to think that God has entrusted us with his riches and his power. Um, in Matthew 15, Jesus had compassion on the multitude because they were hungry. And then he said to follow him. Um, Luke, let's turn to Luke 16.
start in verse 19. It's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass the beggar died and is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I find it interesting that he knew Lazarus' name. So obviously he knew who he was and that he was at his gate every day. So he had that knowledge, but as you can see, he did nothing. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou and thou... In thy lifetime receivest thou good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. <clears throat> Doesn't tell you tell us much about the rich man. I think a lot of times we get to this idea that this was this rich rich man that would have nothing to do with anybody and just kind of self-conceited and off on his own. But for all we know, he could have been, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but or if it's just a parable, but if he, um, for all we know, he could have been a rich, very religious man in the Jewish community. He could have been well-respected. He could have been morally upright, all those things. Um, he could have followed the law, but it says when judgment came, he was, uh, he was tormented because in his lifetime he received good things and didn't comfort Lazarus with the good things he was given. In verse 25, we're given the only reason as far as this passage, I mean, as far as we know, that he ended up where he did. And that's because he didn't give. We can embrace Jesus and give away our wealth or reject him and hoard it all to ourselves. God has given us much. The Anabaptists are a generous people, and there's a there's a natural disaster. They'll mobilize and send trucks and stuff. I mean, rebuild all kinds of stuff. But the whole world still knows that there's piles left over. Have you ever heard anybody in the community say, "Wow, they gave till it hurts." sobering reality and to me to think of that what do what do our neighbors see about us when god first laid this on my heart i was just pondering what is who is our neighbor and how do we reach them how do we impact their lives <clears throat> what is the picture they get of us maybe we leave for 2 weeks to go to Haiti, I'm not saying those things are bad, but if we go for, you know, we leave for two weeks to go to Haiti, do they even know it? 
Do we know them enough that they know that we do that? If they have a need, do we even know that they have a need? There's people around us that struggle to pay heating bills in the winter. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be great if we were known by how by our giving and that we gave till it hurts, that we gave sacrificially? <clears throat> Are we just living the American dream and giving a little bit to appease our own conscience? Or as I like to say, living the American dream with an Anabaptist twist. Just twist it a little bit, you know, like we might not have a super fancy boat, but we can buy another farm or, I mean, just things like that. We can, it's, it's all, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure how far to take that in my own life. I work to work on my house. I just redid my garage and sometimes I pondered that like, you know. Was that the right use of money? I don't know. It struck me after I was paying some of the bills. But how do we, how do we balance those things? The USA has 5% of the world's population. But can anyone guess what we consume of the world's resources? Half. We consume, of the whole world, we consume half of the world's resources for 5% of the population. <clears throat> Do we really think that by living in our own little world, distant from those in need, and then expect to reach people? Do we create a bubble around ourselves of like-minded people? I'm not saying that you shouldn't have people around you that are like-minded to encourage and lift you up and build you up. But if we build this bubble around us of just people that are in our own circles, um, I think in politics they call it an echo chamber. Um, when you When you have somebody of a certain viewpoint and all they do is listen to people of the same viewpoint pretty soon it's an echo chamber because all they hear is the same thing and they don't even realize that there's other things out there are we in our own echo chamber is it enough just to live a different quote unquote life and that be our only testimony are we afraid of the influence of the outside world on us or our children I'm not saying there is influence out there, and I'm not saying that those influences we need to fight against. But if we create a, a bubble around ourselves and are not affected by, by the world around us, and we don't bring in those people with need, then we perpetuate this bubble cycle. I don't know what else to call it. Because then we just, we don't really realize how needy the people are out there, and we're always in this echo chamber of just hearing people that have the same viewpoint and the same viewpoint. And I think that's very dangerous because then it turns many things inward. And I think that's why there's lots of division in churches is there's, they're just, can I say, functioning in their, their own little world inside the world. God called us... Um, God called us to be in the world, but not of it. He didn't call us to be in our own little world, inside the world. <clears throat> how, does, how do we live that out practically, though? That's, that's the part that takes much prayer and much seeking God. <clears throat> do we not believe the Bible when it says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? 
Are we afraid to reach out to the world and get, can I say, get into the messy things in other people's lives because of the influence? Well, what do we do with the verse that says, greater is he that is in you than is he in the world? Are we filled with God? If we're afraid of those influences affecting us, are we saying the devil is more powerful than God? It says we'll be more, God promises that we can be more than overcomers. Have we isolated ourselves and somehow we think that because we look different that people will come to Christ? I'm not saying that we shouldn't look different. I'm not saying I think it's very right and biblical to look different and to be different. I'm not trying to say that we need to be like the world to win the world at all. But we can look different but also be involved in other people's lives. And I'm preaching this more to myself than any of you, so that it really affects me. So for a little, uh, I think it's called missionology, we'll turn to the Old Testament in Isaiah 49 and look at a little bit of God's call to missions. So in the Old Testament in Isaiah 49.6, Uh, 6 through, oh, I guess just 6, um, 49. So 40, Isaiah 49, 6 says, and he said, it is, And he said, It is a light thing that ye, thou shouldest be my servant to rise up, rise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. So here we see God saying that the nation of Israel would be a light to the Gentiles by the, not necessarily by them going out and evangelizing, but by them being separated unto God and living differently than they did. Now let's turn to Isaiah 60, verse 1. <clears throat> 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Whoops, I read 61. <laughs> I guess that verse, that uh, chapter did fit in, though, with the binding up the broken heart and proclaiming liberty to the captives. But I want was actually 60. Sorry. <clears throat> Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. So here, God says he will shine upon Israel, and they will reflect him for others to see. He doesn't say anything about them going out and witnessing or making converts. It says the Gentiles will come to Israel. But I think that's an old... Testament view of missionology because now we have the New Testament and the nation of Israel 
um, God's people is expanded, can I say, to more than just the nation of Israel. So let's turn to Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's almost a direct, I don't want to say opposite, but it's, he totally changed the way we're supposed to reach people. In the Old Testament, he was telling Israel, they were the light and just by living differently and God shining upon them, they would be seen and the, the, um, the Gentiles would be drawn to them. Or the Gentiles would see God. But here he says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Um, in Matthew twenty four fourteen, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. And in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We are to go, actively pursue, to go out and to spread the gospel, to meet the needs, not only physical needs, but also spiritual needs that are out there. <clears throat> uh, let's turn to Second Corinthians 8. through 15. <clears throat> For I mean not that the other men be eased and ye burdened, but by inequality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, and their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. I believe right here it's saying the very reason God gives us, gives me more than I need is so I can give to others. <clears throat> now let's move over to Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad. He hath given to... Oh, wait, no, actually, I want before that. Um, starting six, there we go. But I say, but this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both ministereth bread for your food, and multiplying your seed sown, and increasing the fruit of your righteousness, being... Enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth 
through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Wells, by the experiment of this ministry, ministration, they, they glorify God for you, your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. And by their prayer for you, which long before, long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. The part I want to mainly look at is verse uh, 6, 7, and 8. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. It gives that picture of laying up your fruit or putting your fruit uh, or your treasure in a different uh, kingdom. <clears throat> Not laying up treasures here on earth. And if we reap sparingly, so if we give give much here, I think we'll be much rewarded later. <clears throat> Every man is according as he purposeth in his heart. So it's given to every man. This is our responsibility, mine. It's my responsibility alone to purpose in my heart to give. It's my attitude towards giving what God has given me. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Um, the one guy was saying that, cheerful giver aspect is hilarious it's actually i forget it goes back to the greek um it's a hilarious giver are we hilarious when we give are we that joyful about giving that it's just the funnest thing we've ever done is that what we get our kicks out of what do we get our joy out of do we you know do we get our joy from working do we get our joy from some people get their joy from driving fast or, you know, making model airplanes or, I don't know, there's many things people get joy in, but do we give our, get our joy in actually giving away what God has given us? John Wesley, um, many things about him that obviously are, uh, we would not view eye to eye on, but John Wesley wrote lots of books, and he made a significant amount of money. He made, they estimate, about $160,000 a year in today's money. So he made $160,000 a year, but he purposed in his heart to live on $20,000 in today's money. Most people would think that's a pretty pitiful income. He probably wrote about 100 books, and he made money from them, but he gave away all the rest of it. And actually, some people say, even of that 20000 they estimate he gave away a lot of that. He lived on very, very little. <clears throat> it says, this man, this man had, uh, had a heart for God, or had a heart for everyone that had a need. One, one point, I guess, he even stopped buying tea, which tea was, I guess, a more expensive drink back in those days. And he actually stopped drinking tea because he was spending too much money on it and he couldn't give it away. So I, there's a little account out of his um, diary that I'm going to read. Um, it, I'll read it in the third person. Um, Wesley had just finished buying some pictures for his room, so he bought some wall hangings. When a chambermaid came to his room and not when a chambermaid came to his room and he noticed she only had a thin linen gown to protect her from the cold, he reached into his pocket to give her some money for a coat and realized he didn't have much left after buying the pictures. 
It struck him that the Lord was not pleased with how he had spent his money. He asked himself, Will my master say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast adorned thine walls with the money that could have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? He gives a picture of the the reality or the day-to-day things that he did with his money. I'm not saying pictures are bad, obviously, but um, I do think it behooves us to look at what we spend our money on, what we spend our time on, and is that really furthering the kingdom of God? But, I mean, do we have that sensitivity? You know, we go out and buy something, and do we have... The next question is, do we even know people that would have those needs? <clears throat> it's said that when John Wesley heard any, that anybody got converted, the first thing he'd ask is, did their wallet get converted? That was like every person here that got converted, he'd ask if their wallet got converted. It was that big of a deal to him. <clears throat> Let's go back to Luke 16 to the first part of it. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. So this man was accused of wasting his master's goods. He had, I don't know if he had uh, falsified stuff and taken some for himself, or he'd favored friends or what, but the master heard about it and he called him to account and told him he was no longer going to be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do for I'm for my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. And then he had an idea. I resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me unto their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, Take thy bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. When it says, Lord, this man's master commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. He was still a scoundrel. He was giving away his master's goods, still cheating and lying and giving away things that were not his and not managing his master's property correctly. But his Lord commended him because he realized that this guy was actually smart. I mean, he was a scoundrel, but he had enough sense to say, quick, before I get cast out of the stewardship and I have the authority, I'm going to change these people's bills so when I'm, when I'm kicked out of the stewardship, I'll have somewhere to go because all these people will like me. He, done, he, he knew that when you give stuff away, you'll benefit later.
This man didn't give away his stuff because he had a master who commanded it, but we do. So how much more, if our master commands us to give away our things, are we supposed to do it? How much more will we get in return? If, the wor- if a worldly man knows that if he gives to somebody else and later on he'll get something back because when he's in need, how much more should we be able to do that? Because not only are we just giving things to other people, but, our, but God says he will supply our needs and there will be no lack. If we haven't been faithful in the little things, which it says, I forget where it says that, um, is it in this chapter? Yeah, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And later on it actually goes to talk about how the little thing is actually money and riches. It says, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also that one in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, money, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So if we can't even manage our money, how are we expected to manage God's immense resources that he has, that his power? I mean, he created the world. We, and he says we can have that power through him. And if we can't manage just this little piece of paper and what we do with that, how will God give us the true riches of Christ and his power? How can we be? How can he trust us to handle the, the power that made the world, the power that saved, that saves people from their sins? How many people in our circles are deprived of the talents, or deprived of the power of God because they can't manage their money well? When we hoard, I mean, if I mean, I think that basically says that if you can't manage your money. God won't trust you with all the riches. I think that's one of the reasons why John Wesley was so, he was able to do so much. God looked at him and said, this man has the means to live comfortably, to um, to have all the creature comforts. But he purposed in his heart, like it says, he purposed in his heart to meet the needs of others. And he lived on much less than he made. And he gave away all the rest. I think it's said that the only thing John Wesley left when he died was a battered hat, a tattered Bible, and the Methodist church. Um, Let's look at Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Luke nineteen eight through nine. Uh, eight and nine. This is when Jesus was in Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. It doesn't talk about his repentance. It doesn't talk about him praying. It doesn't talk about it doesn't talk about his salvation. But it says this day is salvation come. How did he know? How do we know that salvation came to Zacchaeus? Because his wallet got converted. 
That's the only thing in here that said that we know the, how Zacchaeus got converted. He stood up and said he'd make right what he had done wrong and he would give to the poor. It doesn't say he would give. I mean, he had immense wealth, but probably some of his wealth was from false gathering thing, or gathering taxes falsely. But he says he'll give all that back fourfold. So he's already giving all that back, but then he says, after that, I'm going to give half my goods are going to go to the poor. In Luke 3, it talks about the proof of repentance. Uh, Verse 11. It's... uh, I think it's the priest. They came to John the Baptist and asked him, and they called him a den of vipers, uh, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Um, And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? So he's talking about hewing down the tree and casting into the fire. And he answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Proof of rep- like he was calling people to repent in this chapter, repent and turn. And what did he say the the evidence of their repenting and turning would be? He doesn't say that they would live a morally pure life. Where I mean, I'm not saying that's not the case, but he says the proof of repentance here is he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. <clears throat> Now I want to go back to Isaiah uh, 58. 10 and 11. Isaiah 58:10 and 11. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones and thou shalt be like a watered garden, like a spring of water. Oops, I started in on verse 11. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and the darkness be, thy darkness be as noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. Thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. If thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. It says, God will make thy light rise and thy darkness be as noonday. That's quite the promise. And he'll guide thee continually and make thee like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never whose waters fail not. It's quite the promise. Turn to Philippians four. 
Philippians 4, 17 and 19. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that they may abound to your account. And going down to 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I think oftentimes it's a little bit claimed out of context that God will supply all your needs. Um, it's claimed here, like in 17, it says, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that they may abound to your account. He's saying the fruit of your, the fruit of you being born again is you giving to others because they had given to him. Um, but he says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God doesn't give us according, God doesn't giving, God doesn't give us according uh, how I worded this wrong in my notes. Now i got to make sense of my own writing. God doesn't give us out of his riches. He gives us enough to tell us how rich he really is. I'm not sure if that's quite the way to say it, but so let's say you had a Somebody had a $50,000 hospital bill. Well, if I came along and paid half of it, they, people would say, wow, that was nice of him. But it wouldn't give anybody, I, it wouldn't give anybody an idea of how, how rich somebody is if they just pay somebody's, half of somebody's hospital bill. But if somebody comes along and pays your hospital bill, your whole hospital bill, plus gives you 100000 everybody around is going to say, like, wow, that guy's rich. He's giving... He's giving, I mean, he's paying off this guy's hospital and he's giving $100,000. So God gives us according to his riches so that we can know how rich he is. <clears throat> I don't know if I'm quite making sense there, but I see a lot of people looking off into space wondering. <laughs> <clears throat> Basically, I'm saying that if, if God is giving to you, if God just gives you a little bit, that doesn't tell you how, power, how much God can give you. If you. So if you don't trust him to, if you can, if you don't have enough faith to trust him on things and you only have a little bit of faith, you're only going to get a little bit and you're not going to realize the, the big, the amount of riches that God can give. You're basically hindering yourself. What do we find our joy in? Do we find joy in giving? It says God loves a cheerful giver. Do we find joy in, I said this before, money, working, buying things, shopping? Do we find real joy in that? Is that really where we want to find our joy? Tartullian said, The reason for the tremendous response to the early church was because of the outpouring of sacrificial love that the heathen felt from the Christian. We are to overcome evil with good. And this is a practical way of doing it. Giving to the others is a practical way of doing it. 
That's why he says that they were so, in the early church was so able to reach others. Another quote from Albert Einstein is, This world is a dangerous place not because of those who do evil, but because of those that look on and do nothing. <clears throat> Will we be remembered for the remembered as the generation that rose up and gave till it hurt? Or will we be remembered <clears throat> or will we be known for our love of soft drinks, fancy cars, large houses, cosmetics, fancy clothes, shoes, expensive electronic gadgets, and expensive vacations? What do you want to be known for when you uh, when you are gone? Or will we be known for taking to heart those that are dying and giving to those that have need? In Galatians 6, 7, it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life eternal, life everlasting. Let us not be well, weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I think oftentimes... Uh, that verse is quoted, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's often quoted as a negative. And you're, the people are saying, if you go out and sow your wild oats or whatever, you're going to reap things in the, later on. But it's also can be a great promise. If you're, sowing, if you're sowing good seed, if you're giving, if you're doing those, it says, uh, you shall also reap. So God's saying, if you bless others, you will be blessed. Our problem is not the high cost of living, but the cost of high living. That quote struck me. How is it that we have all the extra gadgets that save time, but we are so busy? I think of all the farmers out there that buy bigger and bigger and bigger equipment so they can combine faster and plant sooner and all that kind of thing, get across more acres. And then they just get more ground and they're busier yet because they have more ground to get across. I'm not saying that those things are not wrong of themselves, but we think we're saving all these time with all these extra things, but if we don't take the time to reach out and to touch other people's lives, then we're just... Being, wasting our time. We can't take all that to eternity. I have one last story here. <clears throat> In 1940, uh, the U.S. Navy, or Army, I forget which, they had somebody design a ship for a troop carrier. And it didn't get finished until 1952, and it was after the war was over, and it was called the, it could, it was called the USS United States, and the ship had a capacity of 15,000 troops. And it could, it could also be converted into a hospital ship, and it could travel 40 miles an hour and go 10,000 miles without supplies. It was one of the fastest, largest ships ever built uh, for, to carry troops. But after the war, there was no need for it, and it was turned into a luxury liner. So the ship that had been equipped for war and could carry 15,000 troops now carried 2,000 passengers, had... Uh, 
6,695 staterooms, a dining salon, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck, and a heated swimming pool, and was the first fully air-conditioned ship ever built. No longer a vessel for war, but a vessel for indulgence and luxury. I think that is quite a parable when you look at the church today. The church is called to battle. We're called to fight the enemy. We're called to minister to those needs, to press on, to be a soldier. But if we turn the church into a luxury liner, are we just out for the joyride? Are we really concerned about those that are dying? I heard one uh, one man, he had an atheist friend, and the man said, if there was a place as real and as terrible as hell... He's like, I would crawl across the United States on my hands and knees on glass to tell one person about it. And you're just sitting in your church hardly doing anything. He's like, if you really believe that, he, he couldn't grasp his mind around how so many people could believe that yet not do anything. Are we willing to obey the orders of Christ? Am I willing to be like him and follow him in compassion and sacrificial giving? He gave his very life, his all. What little is money compared to that? To forsake our comforts to meet the great need and the danger of our inner cities. The disease-ridden third world communities and the hostile regions of the Middle East. Are we interested in having the church made into a battleship rather than a luxury liner? Are we content with just having a luxury liner? I know if we live as pilgrims, we'll have much to give. Pilgrims don't have much furniture. It's hard to carry along. So we're just passing through and we're stewards of what God has given us. So let's lay up treasure in heaven and be like Christ and give all that we have.